All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mastering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I've got a great guest lined up for us today. We have Teddy Molman out of Denver, Colorado with Higher Ground Investment Group. Teddy, thank you so much for being on today. No, thanks for having me. And you didn't butcher my last name. So that's a, a great start. And you didn't even <laughs> ask me how to pronounce it before this. So usually people butcher that one. So uh, good job. Well, I'll, hopefully I'll keep my luck the rest of the uh, the interview. So I wanted to do something funny. So I've got my normal just intro with some basic facts, but I wanted to spice it up a little bit. So I got ChatGPT to give you an intro. You want to hear it? Let's do it. Okay, so here we go. So it goes, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another captivating episode of the Mastering Commercial Real Estate Podcast, where we deep dive into the world of real estate investing and uncover the secrets to success. I'm your host, Corey Mortensen, and today we have a true powerhouse in the industry joining us. Please give a warm welcome to Teddy Molman. And then it says, applause sound effect. <laughs> I love it. That's great. It goes on, it goes on and on, but um, I'll, let, I'll let Teddy introduce himself and, and give us your background to uh, what you've done in the industry with commercial real estate. And I know you do some residential, but Teddy, let everybody know what you're about and, and your business. Yeah. Um, so I'm about 31 years old now, born and raised in Miami, Florida. Um, I had done some kind of smaller investments prior to kind of really jumping into the commercial side. But um, like you stated, I, I am in residential real estate. So I do about 25, 30 transactions a year there. And the way that I always kind of built my model was with, you know, with real estate, you can always kind of make more money as long as you keep working, right? There's no cap, there's no roof, which is why I love the the industry versus a W-2 or, or, or just a traditional job, you know, you can work harder, but sometimes it's not like they're going to pay you anymore. So with that money, I'd always kind of put some aside and invest into smaller single family deals, short term, long term. And as that kind of started to snowball, um, really started to look at other avenues, other asset classes, you know, listen to a bunch of podcasts that I assume a lot of your listeners do, or, or also yourself, um, Corey. And uh, at the end of the day, it just kind of trickled down to, you have to go bigger and you have to scale and, multifamily and commercial is kind of like that next thing for me. So um, started to do some JV deals, um, smaller, you know, JV deals with some couple partners. And then as we just started to get bigger and bigger, the syndication model kind of fell on my lap and uh, I haven't really looked back ever since. So uh, today we kind of manage about 150 units uh, on the GP side and then combined with LPGP, we have about 400 units um, that we're currently uh, involved with. And that is, in combination of markets like Denver, which is where I'm, I'm currently living now, um, San Antonio, Texas, Iowa, and then we are doing some deals right now in Columbus, Ohio as well. Gotcha. Of all of the markets that you look at, do you have a favorite? Is there one you lean to more than the other? Or are all of those markets pretty equal in your eyes? Uh, great question. I prefer the Iowa market better just because the cash on cash returns are typically higher. And I'm not one of those investors who like to just do quick flips and, and, and exit on a faster note. I prefer cash on cash. I always joke, you know, you, you retire on passive income, not active income, right? So if you can get better returns on your cash and higher cash flow, then you have more time and more freedom to, to do whatever really you want to do and continue to get that mailbox money. But to answer your question, um, I would probably say Iowa. However, given that I'm boots on the ground in Denver, I have a great team in Denver. I have an incredible property manager. Um, you know, Deerwoods PM is who we currently use right now. Uh, in Iowa, you know, we have had some trouble really locking in a great PM. Uh, you know, they're doing fine. But, you know, my business partner and myself, like we're very, very 
you know, we're on it. And uh, I think they just weren't expecting us to be really um, just along with the ride. They just kind of thought that they're going to do it their own way and, and just kind of go for it. But, you know, we're, we're really hands on our management. So we're really trying to navigate those issues, but, you know, again, they're, they're doing what we need them to do, but we just like it to be a lot more than that. So uh, I would say Iowa market, we're just trying to really, plug in those final pieces. And as you know, the PMs are the backbone of your business at the end of the day, because they're the ones that are really executing the business plan. We're just the ones that are managing the managers at the end of the day. Right, exactly. So in your your trials and tribulations with trying to find the right PM, what are some of the things that you haven't had success with that other people can watch out for and stay away from? And what are some of the things that you've had some success with and starting to go in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, you always try to lean on referrals, right? I mean, try to ask other operators in the industry, you know, who they're using, uh, but make sure, you know, maybe a lesson learned for me is, you know, make sure that who you're asking, they're the ones that are, like their business model and their ethics on a day-to-day align with yours, right? Some people might just say, hey, he's a great PM, he's doing what we want him to do, but maybe they're not very as hands-on. Uh, but like I said, for us, you know, we're very, very hands-on, right? So we want to make sure that everything is done and we lay our entire itinerary out for the week for them and they do half of it. Right. It's just like, well, you know, we don't just do all this for you guys to do half of it. We're looking, you know, we're, we're asking you to do majority of it, if not all. Um, so I guess really just kind of lead on those referrals. You know, I always, you know, if it's a market out of state, you got to fly in, you got to shake their hand, you got to meet them face to face, you know, lean on them on their numbers in terms of, you know, when you're underwriting a deal, um, but really just kind of let them come with the numbers first. And then, you know, given that, you know, we're both in real estate, it sounds like you're also an appraiser. You can really kind of hone in those numbers more is, all right, well, are they on par? Are they aggressive? Are they telling you they want that they're going to get 1400 a door when it really should be 1250 or 1300 a door, but they're just want to tell you that so they can get the business and tell you they're going to get more money. Right. So, um, I think just really auditing their work. And, and again, like I said, if it's out of state, you know, making sure that who you are chatting with is not just going to be the, the PM on site, but also who's going to be your point of contact. Because a lot of the times you're really chatting with the, the head honcho of the PM company. And then once you sign and close the acquisition, then you're on to Joe Schmo that you never really met. And now you're working with someone completely different, right? So um, I always try to recommend to, to have those conversations and shake the hand with your, your point of contact, who's going to actually be your boots on the ground and day-to-day um, person you're going to be involved with. Right. And I want to go into your background and how you got started in all this and your interest in real estate. But while we're on the topic, when you're interviewing potential property managers and they're giving you their their terms, their rates and everything that goes into working with them, what are some of the things that you see commonly and what do you prefer? Yeah, um, we typically see, you know, the flat percentage rate. Again, it depends, right? If it's 60 units and under flat percentage rate, um, you know, depending on the market, Denver's like six, six and a half um, with some lease up fees. And then, you know, Iowa is a little bit higher than that, seven and a half, eight percent. Um, you know, that's under six, 60 units for us. And then anything above that, we typically have, um, you know, obviously someone in-house. You know, we're going to have someone on site that's going to be managing it. You know, you got to pay them a salary. And then we'll probably have a floating PM that's just kind of overseeing all the leasing. Um but, you know, that we typically see that flat percentage and then the lease of fees and renewal fees and maybe some hourly costs if they need to bring in someone to do the handyman work or contract work. Do you see oftentimes that they will incorporate construction and renovation costs into their fee and just charge a premium? Or is it a more separate line item that you have to go out and bid out for? 
I've seen it both ways. I've seen some where they have a PM with a construction team, uh, you know, kind of in-house that they sort of separate it in some ways. Like they'll maybe add a percentage on the construction costs. Like let's say you have a $500,000 CapEx budget and you inject it over the next two years. And they're typically going to add 10 or 15% on top of that. Um, you know what I mean? And on some that I've worked with, they just have contractors that they just reach out to to get the job done. So I've seen it done both ways. It's kind of hard to say it this way because, again, it's really project specific and, and market specific. But sometimes it's kind of nice to like have a PM where they're just your PM and have a you know construction team that's just your construction team. However, in addition to that, it's like kind of also nice to have a one point of contact where you're chatting with your PM that's also managing your construction as well. So it, it's kind of a, a double edged sword in some ways. You know, they both have their pros and cons, but uh, really just depends on on the team that you're working with. Yeah. And so for everybody listening, when you're going out and you're looking at property managers, a lot of times when you're first getting started and you're running numbers, you'll run into that flat percentage fee. And usually that's a graduated percentage uh, that decreases with the size of the deal and the size of the uh, property. And mm -hmm. so that rate will go lower, the higher the, or the more units in the property. But if there, there's a lot of things to consider when you're looking at property managers that a lot of people and even the property managers have a tough time describing if you don't ask them. So a yeah. lot of things go into the property management. What's included is, is renovation included. Do they have a construction arm? Do they do the leasing themselves or do you have to have another uh, staff member for that? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things to take into account that you need to do some upfront research on and have a bunch of questions lined out when interviewing property managers. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. yeah. And I always ask too, I, you know, even if you got the referral from someone else is ask the PM for some referrals as well. You know, someone granted, obviously they're going to give you someone that's going to be on their good side. You know what I mean? But uh, no, just asking some specific questions that, you know, you just want to know on, on how they operate and, and whatnot. And especially, you know, asset management is so important for, for us as operators. So, you know, understanding, you know, how are they, how do they operate with the financials, right? You know, are they just boilerplate at Folio gets sent out once a month and that's it? Or are you able to kind of sit down, maybe their CFO or whoever kind of runs the numbers on the back end with their PM company and say, hey, let's kind of recalculate this. This should have been in the CapEx line item, not you know a heavy turn because then, you know, all the, you know you're not going to sell the property in the first year or two while you're doing CapEx, but you want your financials to be clean from day one because even if you do have an opportunity to sell in year three, a good operator is buying. It's going to be looking at financials for the last maybe year or two, um, especially if they're they're going with a you know a Freddie loan or whatever, where they're going to be looking for um, you know a couple of years worth of financials. So uh, I think that's super important as well, because especially for us that we do a lot of you know again we we invest in our own markets that we live in, but we do also invest in out of state markets. And you know I'm not the numbers guy in our team. My partner Javi is, you know, but he rips those financials apart, and honestly, it has saved us just making sure that we can keep up with where we need to be way early on versus waiting, you know, six months in and realizing, Oh crap, we're really far behind on, on this line item or this income or this additional income that we're expecting to get. Cause once you can get ahead of it, then you can set yourself up for success. Right. Right. And so going back to you and your background and I was doing some research, you were a chef before, right? Yeah. You got a yeah. culinary school and everything. Tell us a little bit about that and how you got, how you made the switch over to real estate and what got you interested in real estate? Yeah. Um, I guess I think it was 2013. I started to 
explore around a little bit. I moved to Hawaii just to kind of get out and surf and work and just live the good life after, you know, kind of in between. I was uh, out of high school in 2010 and kind of getting to college and just kind of want to explore a little bit. And uh, I always just kind of really enjoyed kind of having people over kind of being, you know, the start of the party and, and just kind of bringing people together over some food and some drinks. So that kind of navigated me, oh, well, maybe I should do something with, with food and beverage, right? So went into uh, culinary, really enjoyed that, um, worked in some spots in, in, in Hawaii, and then ended up moving out back to Miami, which is my hometown, and starting a catering business there and a private chef business um, in South Florida as well. So did that for a couple of years. Really loved it. Uh, it's just one of those things where I, Miami wasn't where I wanted to be, although it was home for me. Uh, I love adrenaline sports. I love the mountains. I love to explore in Miami. You know, again, it's fun, but it's party, boats, and fishing. And uh, I'm not a big fisher, and I stopped partying uh, a little bit ago. So uh, <laughs> for me, it just it didn't really check my boxes for lifestyle. Uh, so I moved to Colorado. I mean, you know, I'll, you have the mountains as your backyard, and you're able to kind of explore and have that really nice <clears throat> work-play balance. So before I, I moved back, I, you know, I was able to sell um, – my catering business, just kind of my clientele list and uh, started fresh in uh, San Francisco. And then from San Francisco, moved to Colorado when I got the opportunity to start real estate about five years ago. Very good. So what what got you What interested in real estate? Was there somebody that you knew or did you see something doing research already in business and everything? So I'm sure that those kind of discussions happen organically between people. But tell me how you got wind of real estate and got interested in it enough to move into it full time. Yeah. Um, so it's always kind of been in the family. You know, my grandfather had a, has a successful shoe business in Central America. That's where my mom's side of the family's from. And, uh, you know, with, with the profits from his, you know, his business there, he's always kind of invested in real estate that kind of trickled down to my mom. Um, you know, she obviously has, has kept that portfolio after he passed away and, and has continued to grow that, you know, however she see fit. Um, she's bought properties as well throughout her lifetime. And those are all cash flowing for her now. Um, so I didn't really get the bug. I'd probably say about until about five or six years ago, uh, a good buddy of mine in Colorado Springs. Uh, he told me that I should get into real estate. He knows I, I work hard. I hustle and I love to just kind of really dive into something and really go all in. And he said, you know, really, if you keep working, you keep getting paid. Like I told you earlier, there's no, there's no roof. There's no cap. And at that time I was an account executive for a food distribution company out in San Francisco. And I kept growing my book of business, you know, 20%, 30% year over year. And there was a point where I just wasn't getting paid anymore just because of how the commission structure was. And I mean, I'm very fortunate how I was, how much I was getting paid. You know, I was working hard. However, like I said, there was no growth after that. What was the next, you know, what was that next tier uh, of income? And also, you know, I mean, the taxes in California are, are laughable. So uh, that's when I, I exited and it just kind of lined up at the time where he told me about real estate. So uh, got my residential license, uh, like I said, about five, five and a half years ago. And that's where I started to kind of really start, um, buying smaller deals with my commission checks. You know, as you know, you're in real estate. If you do really well, you get these big checks, right. And you can have great months where you're making 50 grand a month. And then you have some months where you're making just 10 grand a month and it just kind of ebbs and flows. And if you have all this money, especially me, that's an a general injunction. You want to go buy a snowmobile. You want to go buy another toy a dirt bike this and that so for me to not do that i just kept buying real estate um so i would always say you know i, I was i'm always typically cash poor obviously i had my reserves to make sure that i i you know in the worst case scenario i'm covered with all my assets but i really put all of my money into um mostly tangible assets or investments that that money can grow for me 
like I said, versus buying something stupid that will probably depreciate over time. Uh, however, if you are creative, you can actually buy you know depreciating asset and make it work for us. Given we're real estate professionals with the taxes, but um, that's a whole nother whole nother podcast. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So let's talk deals. Let's talk about the the latest deal that you've done. How big was it? How many units? Volume? Everything? You know, just give us the the over overview right now. You said the biggest deal or the latest deal? Sorry. No, just the latest deal. Yep. Uh, the latest deal, we just closed one in, in Aurora, uh, just out at the submarket, just outside of Denver on the east side, close to the airport. Uh, that was a smaller 12 unit for us, uh, but it was an assumable debt by Freddie, so 3.4% assumable debt with a couple months IO once we took over. Um, long story short, the, the apartment was relatively stabilized. It was renovated for the most part. It was just bad management. Um, the investors were living in New York, if I remember correctly. And they just didn't manage the manager. They had no idea what really Aurora was. And it's a very C-class neighborhood that you do get iffy pockets and iffy tenants if you don't really screen them correctly. And the manager they had on site, you know, he was the traditional four and a half, five percent manager that he just got paid out when he leased. So he would lease them way below uh, market just because he wanted to get those lease up fees. Didn't screen the tenants because he didn't care if they didn't pay. He'd kick them out and didn't do it again. They just get paid out those lease up fees. Or renewals. So uh, we ended up just going in there really and just doing some light CapEx, you know, all the common areas and, and exterior just to kind of give that little bit of a facelift. We got rid of the bad apple tenants that were causing some some mayhem inside the building, you know, punching holes in the hallways and all that jazz. So we got rid of those guys and um, and really just raising rents, adding rubs and cutting expenses. is uh, So it's an easier value add for us, which we're super excited about. And then again, having that 3.4 assumable debt that is also assumable again in the event that we want to sell it in five, six years, someone else can take that note as well. So we're pretty excited about that. That's awesome. And so tell us about your first deal, what that looked like, the process, raising money. Was that a syndication or was that a deal that you did uh, out of your own pocket? Tell us more about that mm -hmm. first deal. Yeah, my first multifamily deal would have been more like a JV. So just kind of smaller pool of partners uh, versus syndicating, like you said, and going out and raising money from outside investors, some people you don't know and some people you do know. Um, so that was a 10 unit in Des Moines, Iowa, you know, just east of, of Des Moines. Um, you know, it was a, a good purchase for us because, again, it was old school landlord. They, I mean, they charge the landlord was even paying for the Wi-Fi, the trash. I mean, all, all everything in terms of expenses was paid by the landlord, and the rents were way below market. Uh, unfortunately, again, very you know already renovated. So that would be our first deal that we JV'd, um, and that one, like, I mean, within the first six months, we were already stabilized because everyone was month to month. So we raised rents to market, added rubs, made them pay for their own Wi-Fi, which. I mean, what tenant doesn't pay for their Wi-Fi these days? And uh, that one is actually probably one of our best cash flowing properties uh, to date just because it was just so below market. We were able to kind of really add that value. When you were taking a look at that deal, that was you had had experience with investing in, in smaller deals and everything. When it came time to start analyzing, running the numbers, was that your responsibility? Did you do that or did you have a partner that, that ran the numbers on the underwriting? Yeah, great, great question. On um, that one specifically, I had uh, had done it myself. Um, I can run the numbers; it just takes me longer. Um, my business partner that I brought in maybe about a year or so ago, um, he has a finance background. Uh, he used to do something very similar in, in regards to rentals, but was more in the um, um, 
like a construction equipment, you know, he even came down to depreciation schedules and all that very similar in construction that he owned. And it was a family business that he was the finance guy. He was a CFO behind the scenes. So uh, when he left his family business, he just kind of really wasn't as excited about it and passionate for it. You know, he did some real estate in, in college as kind of like a second degree. And uh, we met up about a year ago and he told me what he was looking to do. And I told him what my weakness was. And I was like, Hey, just come to the office and let's see, uh, let's see what you do. And he literally just sat in the corner and underwrote like 30 deals uh, just to get practice and barely bugged me and did it. I mean, a hundred times faster than me. And I was like, all right, I don't know. I can't pay you anything, but you're hired. You know, I'll, I'll give you some equity. And, and honestly, we've been, uh, it's a perfect, perfect yin to my yang. And, and uh, it's awesome to have someone that, that does something that I don't really love to do. Right. I mean, he gets excited. He gets jazzed. He, um, I mean, he gets like weirdly excited about doing, I mean, underwriting deals and running numbers and building spreadsheets and showing me how he built them. Like, I don't care about that. I want to look at that bottom number. Tell me if this is a go or no go. That's all I care about. I don't even know about all the formulas you put into it. So, um, you know, just to, to wrap that up, I'll say like, you just, you need to find out what your weakness is and, and, fill that piece right don't hire someone maybe that's like-minded <clears throat> in regards to like your strengths i think that's super important um you know i always like to say you know do what you do best and hire the rest because that will make sure that you're successful with your business yeah and you answered one of the common questions that i ask is is what is your weakness and what is your strength and you definitely touched on your weakness how you fix that how you uh hired out or you got your partner with your your buddy on that what is your strength in in your business? Yeah, I'd say more investor relations, capital raising. Um, that's probably more my strength. Asset management just kind of goes with it just because I prefer to, to, to manage my own assets, especially if I'm bringing in some of my, uh, you know, friends and family and or other investors capital. Um, so I'd say that's the kind of the hat that I wear. Obviously, we have other hats as things under contract or in due diligence and all that. But you know, we kind of navigate after the first couple of deals, we kind of navigated and saw, all right, well, who's going to attack what, who's going to do the other part of it. And ever since then, we just know when an email comes through our inbox, like he knows that that's mine or I know that's his and we'll just kind of run with it. But for me, it's asset management, probably invest relations. Gotcha. So when it's coming to investor relations and you're going and raising capital, what mm. are some of the pieces of advice that you have in putting deals out in front of investors, risk management, objection handling, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, and it's, it's a, it's a good question because it's so important, right? I mean, especially like I, I, I help some, some newer guys, um, you know, through DMM, which is the deal maker mastermind, right. Um, through, through Michael Blank's program. And, you know, you look at some of these people that are looking to raise capital on these deals and they have they have six, seven percent year over year rent appreciation, you know, for the next seven years. And it's like, well, yeah, I know that's how it was potentially the last couple of years in some markets or maybe more. But, you know, we need to make sure we're conservative and say, hey, what if it just flattens out? Or we're seeing some markets that are in the, in the red this year. You know, we're seeing some markets that are not moving at all. So um, I think, you know, when it comes to risk management, you just got to really dive into the numbers, almost like if it's your own deal, especially if you're just a capital raiser. You can't just take the numbers like an OM and just and run with it. Like you got to run your own numbers and make sure they're aligned. Look at comps, maybe call some PMs and, and just ask if they think that's appropriate for for the uh, performer numbers. And uh, and even if you don't know the market, you know, call some agents. You know, I'm, again, I'm fortunate. I'm an agent, a realtor in both Florida, licensed in Florida and Colorado. I'll call up an agent 
in a market that I'm not familiar with and say, hey, what do you think of this neighborhood? You know, we'd love, you know, two minutes of your time. If the guy's not going to give you two minutes and hang up the phone and call someone else, you know what I mean? But an agent's going to usually just give you his peace of mind if he knows the market pretty well. So really just hammer, again, to answer your question, just hammer the numbers. Because, um, you know, one thing I always say too is it's easier to raise money if the, if the deal's actually good. And yeah, you might get some novice investors. I might not know the numbers as well, but if you get some repeat investors that, you know, or maybe some family offices that have a ton of capital to inject in, in syndications, like they're smart, you know, they, they're not just going to write you a check. Like they're going to either look at the numbers on their own, or if they're up there and, you know, somebody's hired, you know, high net worth individual we work with, they'll send it to their CFO, to a finance guy, their financial advisor, or just send it to someone they pay literally just to underwrite the deal for them. And if you send them a bad deal, like you might've just burned that bridge and you're not going to ever going to get money from that guy again. So uh, before you present the deal, like you got to really make sure you do your due diligence to make sure, like you said, to, to kind of just avoid that risk, not only to bring in investors for a bad deal, but to potentially present a, a mediocre deal to investor and maybe lose that trust with that investor for any potential future opportunities. Yeah, that's a good point. And being knowledgeable of your underwriting and having the story that supports what you're going to show your investors is is one of the most key things that a syndicator or somebody who's going out and raising money is is going to have in their tool belt because just like you said these people are sophisticated they're smart they're accredited investors they've already done well and now they're putting their money to work that they've worked so hard to accumulate they're yeah. going to double check and they're going to know what they're talking about even if they don't do real estate they're going to have somebody take a look at it that does do real estate or have a second opinion on it because they've double checked things through their whole life and so having exactly correct assumptions and knowing your market and knowing where the market is going. And like you said, not taking a look at an OM or seeing somebody else's projection of incredibly high rent growth at this point in the mm -hmm. market. And, you know, we're taping in the middle of summer, 2023 rents have in a lot of markets really stabilized or even gone down a little bit just because of how everything has been recently. And so on yeah. our underwriting, we're super, we're already, you know, healthily conservative, but, you know, we're not really anticipating anywhere over, uh, you know, two or 3% rent growth. And that's later on in the deal horizon. So exactly all of that is, is extremely important. What else are you doing in your underwriting to make sure you're staying conservative and in line with the market, your business plan and what investors will put money into? Yeah, um, I think a, a big one, you know, a big question that investors always ask us is kind of like, what's the, the biggest impact in your underwriting, right? And I think it's rent growth from, from what I can understand. Obviously expenses can be skewed and, and that can really throw it off your day, especially if you don't calculate, um, you know, property taxes being reassessed, right? That's a big mistake that a lot of operators make, uh, especially if you're buying it, you know, 10 years after the previous owner. Some states have homestead taxes where the taxes don't really increase as much, but um, a lot of the deals that we're underwriting right now, we typically like to say the first two years, even before we did three years, but we're starting to change that now is that we actually won't do any rent growth over the first two years. However, yeah, we'll add, maybe if it's below market, we'll say, Hey, we'll bring those rents up to market. But for the first two years, we're just going to do that. We're not going to say, Hey, we'll bring it up to market and then tack on 4% in the next two to three years. Our projections right now are saying, hey, we're just going to say for the first three years or first two years, we're just going to bring it up to market and then not add any rent growth for the next, you know, like I said, two to three years. 
great. If it grows, if it goes up, even better, right? But we want to make sure, especially right now, given these kind of uncertain times, that you know we have a worst case scenario. Um, at least in the markets that we're seeing, we're not really expecting negative growth. Uh, obviously, we don't know that for sure. But I'd say right now, that's been one of our, our big takeaways is trying to let's say, hey, you know what, let's just not expect it to grow. Let's just go flat for the next couple of years and really focus on just getting those units where they need to be to get those performing numbers or maybe exceed those performing numbers because we did such a good job on the CapEx renovation and then really hammer just the business plan with expenses and make sure that we can bring those expenses down. Um, you know, there's many ways to do that. I mean, on a big building, if you just add low flow toilets on a hundred unit building or a 60 unit building, your water bill goes down a lot. I mean, like 20, 30% in some, some places. Um, so just doing that, right. Versus really focusing on X, Y, and Z, go back to the basics and just do that and do again, going back to water, do water walks, maybe once a quarter, see how many of those toilets are actually just flowing all day because the tenant's not going to call you. We just did that one of our properties. Now, you know, we do some dye in the back tank. If we see the dye come out, that means the toilets, you know, uh, it's running and what it shouldn't be. We'll replace the toilet if needed. Um, and just really just make sure that we're not just having literally pennies just getting dished out all day across 60 to 100 units. That's going to add up over the, a five or seven year business plan. Yeah. And another note on presenting to investors is you say we're not going to anticipate for any rent growth for the first couple of years and we're going to be really conservative we know we're not going to maybe put any below or rent dips or anything mm -hmm. but i think it's important to state there's some risk in those presentations because a lot of the presentations i've seen from other gps and sponsors have just been egregiously sunny you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Everybody, there's no negative in there at all. Everything is going to go perfect. They're going to get crazy rent bumps in there. And I'm looking at them like, this is terrible. This, there's no way. Mm -hmm. There's no way they're going to get those rent assumptions. There's these crazy expenses that they're not going to be able to trim down. And that's not even from a, a highly sophisticated point of view, you know, and there, yeah. there's no, nothing in there that has a gray, gray sky situation or anything and i think it's important when you're giving those presentations to say listen this is there's this this and this risk we're going to be conservative here here and here we may take a hit here because of this and that and investors love that they love to yeah. know that you are fully aware that this could go one way or the other no matter what it's not going to be you're going to make so much money this is great you need to invest with us because this mm -hmm. is just a gold mine yeah investors hate that they're gonna stay yeah. away from it has, has that been your experience you'll, you'll, with you'll, well i mean when you say that you'll typically get those, those novice investors which is unfortunate right because they they're just trying to get into the game which is great you know i love that they're trying to get into real estate i mean it's, it's the best asset class that you can get into grow wealth i mean top two top three for sure right i know there's other things out there that that are, are, are you know similar but i mean to answer your question yeah we we have I think two slides uh, in our pitch deck typically that will show, you know, what are the risks and how are we mitigating that risk, right? And, uh, you know, and with that, you know, we'll also provide numbers. Hey, what if we do 7% vacancy or 10% vacancy when we're really underwriting for five, which is the market average, right? And, you know, hey, why do we get hit seven or 10? Things happen. The economy happens. God knows what's going to go on tomorrow with everything that's going on in the world. And we can't forecast that. However, we'll show, hey, 
in the event we get 10% vacancy, this is where our, your numbers are going to be at. So when it comes to our pitch deck and our numbers, we don't give like a, like a perfect percentage. We kind of give a range, you know, let's just say it's 15 to 18% IRR or whatever, and then you know, eight to 10% cash on cash. And then we correlate those numbers with that risk management slide and say, the, re the way that we came up with those that range is by saying, hey, what if we only did 3% rent growth every single year or average versus the four we were projecting? And this is why we got this number. So again, it provides to the investors, you know, not only are we thinking about everything's all, all gravy and, and sunshine, like you said, we got to look at worst case scenarios and things that we have no control of to make sure that we're setting ourselves up for success. And in the event that happens, how are we mitigating that risk? And in the event that we can't do it to 100%, what do those numbers look like? And we're still cash flowing. We're still in a good position. You know, Maybe we didn't hit the perfect number we want on the higher end, but hey, 15% average annual return or RR, however you want to look at it, not, that's not terrible. You know, But maybe we didn't give you the 18% that we wanted, but we still gave you kind of within the range. And that's, again, just really hammering those numbers with uh, the risk mitigation and management. So. Exactly. And all that just goes back to being realistic and slightly conservative um, yeah. for deal sourcing and marketing. What are you guys doing to, to find deals? Sounds like you've done a lot of direct to owner type of deals, or have you been working with brokers? Tell us about where you're looking at deals from and, and how you're marketing to them. Yeah, I'd say a lot of it's through brokers right now. Um, most of them are through brokers. We don't have too much. We have a couple in the single family investment group stuff that we do like sub two, uh, mortgage, like we'll take over their mortgage and stuff like that. And that's more direct to seller. Um, but a lot of our multifamily stuff has been through brokers, uh, just, you know, having drinks with them, taking them out to dinners. My partner plays golf. He goes golfing with some of the guys, um, you know, just, just staying top of mind, taking those calls and, you know, I say that I got to get better at it. We typically do every bi-weekly. We're supposed to be calling our brokers and just checking in, just make sure we're top of mind. Sometimes that slips through the cracks. As you as you know, things get busy. But, you know, it, it just – you just got to stay top of mind. And believe it or not, sometimes you call out of the blue, like, oh, you know what? I totally forgot. I should have sent you this one deal. Um, I will say, as you know, 95% of them don't work. Uh, probably 98, you know, in this market. But especially the ones that are a little more stabilized, like us as syndicators, we need the meat on the bone. We need that value add component. If not, the numbers don't make sense. So it's typically a little bit harder in that realm. But, you know, we do just kind of make those calls just stay top of mind. Uh, all my brokers are kind of involved in my CRM. So whenever they see us get deals closed or get deals under contract, like they know that, you know, we're not just wasting their time. Um, one thing that I'll add on, on, I wouldn't say it's marketing per se, but really just to create that bond with that broker and also just kind of have some more uniqueness to it is, you know, once you get a deal, um, my partner underwrites the deal. Usually again, it doesn't work. He'll actually provide a pretty detailed feedback. Uh, if it's, if it's like totally off, he just says, Hey, this is not a good reason. Not a good deal for X, Y, and D reason. But if it's, you know, somewhat close, but probably not going to happen, you know, let's just say it's 5 million and we need to be at 3.5 or whatever. And he knows the whispered price is four and a half. Um, he'll still provide some information on why, pretty detailed email. And I promise you that broker is probably forwarding that to the seller and probably saying, Hey, like this is what we're getting. Right. Cause it makes the broker look good. And maybe it, all that information and feedback will eventually get the seller to realize, okay, maybe my assets not worth 5 million because insurance is up, you know, you know, obviously cap rates are adjusting, you know, we're seeing, you know, interest rates in a very, very interesting volatile environment. So I think that that really 
creates more of a unique touch to these brokers is providing that feedback with their underwriting. I could not agree more with that. And that's a practice that that I use. I am our underwriter and broker relations guy for my my company. And we that's what I do. I underwrite the deals. If I'm just completely off, I'll just kind of shoot them a, a message say, hey, I'm I'm gonna be way too off on this. Um, and I'll maybe put in a couple pieces of feedback, but if it's um somewhat reasonable on on the syndicator scale of of broker to syndicator deals um i'll do that i'll do that i'll say hey here's here's what i saw on this here's your assumption here's what i'm assuming this is what this number looks like and sometimes i'll even just forward them my excel sheet and say hey if you want to take a look at what i did maybe i'm i'm wrong somewhere maybe i overassumed something let me know and i think yeah. that is such a valuable thing to do when you're talking about broker relations because half the time they send a deal out to somebody and they won't hear anything they'll even yeah. if it's a good deal bad deal that person 90% of the time ghosts them um, yeah i'd say more than half i have no idea why yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no i'd say more than half i've asked a couple of brokers they're like dude i get maybe like 80% never never hear back you know and, and like you said, even if it's just way off, like just be transparent, you know, Hey, it's way off just because, Hey, there's no me in the bone, you know, this is, you know, and, and that also helps kind of re remove some of that extra work. Like there's nothing worse than getting a deal that you know, is just not going to work. Like the broker should know you. Right. And you want to make sure he does, because you don't want to get a bunch of deals to underwrite and then waste your time on half of them when you just know like, Hey, I don't want a class. Why you say, Hey broker, you know, just want to remind you, like we're looking for C, Maybe B class value add stuff is A class stuff. It's never going to pencil out for us because like you don't want to be getting blown up with all these emails. If you're talking to a lot of brokers in different markets, you're probably getting a lot of emails, right? So to try to kind of like just eliminate some of that clutter in your email box, which if that stuff starts to build up, you get a little stressed, you got a lot of work to do. Um, just say, hey, you know, this isn't going to be this not going to work for us. We don't want A class. Only send us value add stuff with good me in the bone, and then exactly. that, that again that'll that'll help you out in the long run. Exactly. And all the other, the other tip I would, I would say is, you know, try and get back to them within 24 to 48 hours. Cause that shows that you're heavily involved. You're actively looking, you're on the ball with everything. You know, I do a fairly good job of it. Sometimes I get busy and it'll take me a minute to get, to get back to them. But yeah, I mean, the, the getting back to them, giving them feedback. And also that helps you beat the seller up a little bit. Like you, like you mentioned, you know, you, they are going to yeah. take that feedback and forward it to the seller. Cause it's in their best interest to sell the property. And if that property is sitting and you're the only one giving them feedback, that's the feedback that they have. And sometimes they'll even reduce the price and start to lower and become yeah. more negotiable. Whereas before they were just, they wanted, you know, a 30% over what you can pay type of, yeah. type of situation. And so there's a lot of benefits to just having good relationships and communicating transparently with, mm -hmm. with your brokers and being realistic with them. Agreed. Yeah. So when you are dealing with your business, running your business, what are some of the team members that you've brought on to help facilitate all of the hats you have to wear as a syndicator and, and fill a lot of those roles? How many people are on your staff? Yeah. I mean, right now it's just my partner and myself, and then I have a transaction coordinator that kind of helps with some stuff. Um, you know, obviously, if you want to look at you know lending brokers as someone on your on your team, but obviously they get kind of get paid out per deal, um, and then insurance brokers and all that. They're not really on my team per se, but you know, I would I would classify them as someone that's on my corner. So because at the end of the day, especially right now, insurance is like you gotta have a good insurance guy. I mean, you gotta have this guy that doesn't just go out and gets bids 
Like he hammers them. He looks at the numbers. And especially right now, when you're submitting an application, like if you don't do it right, your number is going to be totally skewed. I mean, totally skewed. So making sure you have a good insurance guy, you have a lending broker that's going to really kind of go out there and, you know, call a lot of banks, especially right now, local banks are huge. Um, unfortunately, you might get recourse debt on that. But I mean, if you're really, really excited about the deal and to get, you know, a point, point and a half less on interest, but it's a recourse debt, that might be something you want to look at. Um, but to kind of answer your question, just like internally within the team, we got my partner and then I have a TC that kind of helps with more admin stuff. Gotcha. And so with your crystal ball, your assumptions mm-hmm. on the market, where the market is going and where the opportunity is now, it's a two-part question. I'll start with the latter. What is the opportunity right now for commercial real estate investors that you're seeing that you're capitalizing on? I think you touched a little bit on what I think the answer might be a little bit, and that's the assumable loan situations right mm-hmm. now with where interest rates are at, but I'll let you I'll let you take it. Yeah, I mean, assumable debt's great, but it also, it sucks at the same time because it takes so long, right? You know, especially if you're using a servicer, um, you know, typically how Freddie will do it, for example, is they'll have a servicer that'll kind of gather all the information together um, before they actually submit the file to Freddie for for the final approval. Um, I mean, for our deal, that took us probably five months just to get everything approved and verified through the servicer. Uh, and it was a mess. Uh, it was terrible. You know, we were on top of them every other day. They were not good at being efficient. They asked us for forms that we submitted three or four months ago all over again. Um, and so we really took like six, seven months, I think, to close that deal, just given the assumption. I don't know if that's how they all are. Uh, at least from what I hear, they're definitely taking at least at least four months, five months, just to get like that initial stamp approval. So I think those are great um, because the numbers, but sometimes you pay a little bit more for the price because the interest rate assumption, right? So it's kind of has a, a double-edged sword there. Um, I, I am always buying in any market, personally, uh, just like, you know, Warren Buffett buys stocks in, in any market as well, right? So over the long run, it's always going to work, especially in, 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 in my opinion, commercial multifamily real estate. Um, the way I look at it now is, you know, when interest rates are higher, you might get a price break on the on the on the asset. And then when rates drop, you can always refinance. You know, very similar to residential right now. A lot of my residential clients aren't are a little hesitant. I'm like, hey, listen, you can buy this asset at a less price because you need to be in that affordable price point. Like the sellers are gonna sell where it's affordable. Whereas same thing with, with commercial real estate, the sellers are gonna have to sell to hit the debt service ratio, right? Unless they're paying cash or putting a hefty percentage down. So in my opinion right now, I think we're getting some opportunities are starting to trickle in. I thought it'd be a little bit sooner, um, especially with some of those rate caps expiring. Um, a lot of these people, operators that bought two years ago underwrote for maybe three, 4% on refi after their bridge loan has expired. We're nowhere near that right now. So. I thought we'd see some more opportunities right now. I know some markets are uh, for sure. You know, we're starting to see some big defaults on, on some big, big operators. Um, but, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm just buying all markets. And as long as it works for me now, you know, again, if we can refine the next two to three years, I think rates are going to be coming down um, within that time frame. We typically see looking at historical data, the faster and higher the interest rates go up, we'll typically see, the longer and lower it stays down, right? You know, so 
you know, if you look at the plot map with the Fed, you know, they're starting to see some, you know, this may be more 30 year fix, but they're starting to see some stuff in the low threes in the next you know, 20, maybe late 2024, 2025. Right. I don't know if that's realistic. I think it's going to definitely come down. You know, that's what the Fed does. Raise rents, slow the economy down. Once it's so, super, super slow, they pump the brakes, they drop the interest rates, stimulate the economy again. They want people to borrow money, spend money, everything. It's just kind of this, this vicious cycle and it happens as far back as you look in terms of historical data. So um, that's why I'm buying now. My interest rate might be high, but we're underwriting that will probably be in, in the mid fives, 5% upon refi. So if we're lower than that, I mean, you know how that looks in underwriting. It's it's a great, great addition to our uh, our returns to our investors and our GP side. So um, I don't have a crystal ball, but all I know is that people are going to be renting especially right now with affordability. I mean, it's so tough for people to buy houses. A lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, we're, I mean, in the highest debt that, you know, not only in the economy, but also just people, individual consumers um, are in this crazy, crazy debt, you know, to date. And uh, I just think that the rental market is going to stay strong due to that. So uh, I'm buying apartments for that reason. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's so much runway with, multifamily and so much opportunity mm -hmm. both now and in the future. And and when you were talking, I thought I had a question and it was, if you were buying properties three years ago and let's say you just, you just nailed it on your exit assumption. You're like, I have a feeling interest rates are going to double, maybe triple from where they are right mm -hmm. now. And you're underwriting for that. Do you get a deal done? Or is Back it so then, far off from people's expectation and the pricing? Because that that exit is going to really hurt from what other people are assuming where they were assuming. Yeah, lower interest rates and and better cap rates. So, do you get deals done if you you nail it on the head like that? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, so tough because like if it's like you think about what two where we were two and three years ago, right? I mean, because you never because uh, it just came out of nowhere. They're like inflation's all of a sudden fifteen. 10 to 15 percent it's crazy yeah we got to get it down yeah. and then we've had the last year but you couldn't have told that no one could yeah no one could have really predicted that and the ones that probably said they did they're probably lying or they just you know you know maybe they maybe maybe they were close but i mean no one thought look at the the like the map of our increase of, of rates over the last you know eight months i mean there's no way that someone thought they would be that aggressive right um, to the point that, you know, look at these banking crises that we're seeing, you know, I mean, it's just, it, it's fascinating to look at the numbers. Um, but I think like, as long as you just have those, you know, exit strategies in place where you can kind of say, all right, well, what if this happens, you know, but again, you, you go back to like, no one would ex really expect that. So we typically look for fixed debt, um, even if it's going to cost a couple points on our returns just because we just think that that's the safest route, um, you know, and, you know, the debt that we have on a couple of properties now is in the event that our, our, let's just call it a bridge debt is, 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 is expiring. We have an option to actually extend it uh, based off of, you know, might be a floating rate after that, but at least it's not just like, Hey, we're just, we have to refinance or we have to sell. We like to have that third exit strategy is like, hey, let's just float this thing out. You know, we might be eating into our returns for the next six to eight months, but at least we can be 
having we at least can have that third exit strategy, which is just let's just float it out for a little bit versus being stuck in a corner where the bank knows you have to refinance or have to sell. Uh, I think that's super important. Right. And the thing that blows my mind is is operators who were buying deals with debt and were offered rate caps for just unbelievably low amounts of money. I mean, that is it was almost free insurance on your debt. And yeah, now you look at rate cap pricing and it's just unfathomable. I mean, it's so high. Yeah. It's almost it's prohibitively high. And the mm -hmm. fact that operators weren't purchasing those with something that's so important to your return structure, no mm -hmm. matter what the the environment looks like, it's like, oh well, twenty five grand for a a rate cap. Why not? All day, you know? all day. Yeah. Now, I mean, they're. I mean, I can't even begin to <laughs> yeah. tell tell you where the rate caps are at from where they yeah. were. I mean, it's just like ten x on. Well, what's even also. What's also crazy that too, Corey, is like, what about the smart operators that did get those rate caps, but now they're expiring, right? You know, maybe they did it 2020, 2019, 2020 or whatever. And, 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 you know, now we're at, you know, we're 2023 and, um, you know, they're, they, they did the right move and they, they try to protect their investors money, but now they're just still in an unfortunate situation where, you know, either they didn't get with their rent performance numbers or they didn't expect to refi at, you know, five, five and a half. Right. Yeah. Hindsight's 2020. So yeah, exactly. But man, well, that flew by. Teddy, thank you so much for, for being on today. Where two more quite where can people find you and and reach out to you? Yeah, I mean our website's higher ground IG as an investment group. So highergroundig.com. And then uh I mean you can reach out to me through social media as well. Uh that's teddymo.realtor. Um, I got all, all my, my professional and uh, personal stuff on there. I'm, like I said, crazy adrenaline junkie. So anything for me, jumping on a plane, skydiving to, uh, buying apartments is on that page. So, uh, anyone that's listening that wants to reach out and, and chat more or ask me any questions, I'm happy to help any way I can. Perfect. And one last tip to send us out to get everybody fired up, to go chase down some deals and continue mastering commercial real estate. Yeah, I mean, you just you just got to take action. Um, you know, I actually had sp spoke to another person yesterday about this, and it's like, you know, there, there's never the right time. The market's never going to be exactly where you want it to be. You know, and, and one thing I always like to say is, you know, you're going to have to build the plane while you're already flying. You know, you just got to take action. You just got to do it. I mean, you, you, I mean, if you can sit on the sidelines your whole life, you're just never going to make it happen. So I'm not saying go out there and take action, screw up, but at least you can take action, figure it out along the way, because realistically, a lot of entrepreneurs or hustlers out there, I mean, they're not waiting for the perfect moment. They're really just kind of getting what they got to get done, take action, and then they'll figure it out along the way. And hey, if it's not the right deal, I mean, if you write the contract correctly, you can terminate and maybe just lose a little bit of money or no money at all. So take action. Exactly. You hear that, everybody? Take action. Again, the best piece of advice from our amazing guest, Teddy. Thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Corey. I appreciate it. All right, guys. Well, this has been the latest episode of the Mastering Commercial Real Estate Podcast, and I'm your host, Corey Mortensen, and we'll see you next time.